I've always wanted to claim, however untrue it probably is, that... As with every episode, just remember. This one goes out to the one I love. This one goes out to the one I've left behind. A simple prop to occupy my time. This one goes out to. And I kind of like Sarah Bareilles. I also really, really like. This is something I've wanted to touch on for a while. Something that's a bit gut-wrenching a little bit and heart-twisting, but something that I've wanted to mention, something that I've wanted to touch on, just in memory, in their memory, in their memorial, to everyone that had, well, everyone that died, I believe 20 years ago, and it's one of the most legendary and well-known plane accidents in world history. And I, I wanted to bring it up, not to, to bring it up again, but to honor the memory of what happened and of all the children, of all the people, of all everyone who died in the accident. And I wanted to mention it. And... This is a story, and it's called this because of where it occurred, the area of where it occurred. And look it up on the internet, and look it up on YouTube if you want to see the documentaries and stories about it in a little bit more detail. But this is a story of the Uber-Lincoln uh, mid-air collision, two, uh, yeah, 20 years ago in 2002. And it's very, it, it's very, yeah, very, very, well, as is anything. It's very twisted and very unfortunate and very heart-wrenching and gut-twisting and soul-twisting that it even occurred. And a lot of it occurred um, in 2002 because the original, the, the tourist agency or the travel agency that some of the children had chartered their plane through had messed up had screwed up or something, didn't get them to the correct airport, didn't get them to the correct destination. So they couldn't catch their original flight, the flight they were intended to catch to Barcelona. Uh, 
which is where a lot of the children were going. There were other some families who were going there as well to meet their father, who was finishing up a project in Barcelona, and they and this and so the flight agency, the flight agency, the tourist agency messed up their flight and they got them to the wrong airport and they got where the wrong time. And because they missed their original flight, they were had to be they were rescheduled on this unfortunate, horrifying accident that occurred. And they of course they would have no then no one would ever have you would never know something like that. But this is this is what happened and this is as much as I've been able that I've been able to dig up and stories that I've been able to find on on what happened. And again, this is in their memorial and their memory. It is perhaps one of the saddest stories in the history of commercial aviation. A plane full of Ru- of the Russian Republic's brightest young students, her aspiring artists, musicians, and athletes, torn cruelly from the sky, their hopes and dreams scattered across the fields of southern Germany. It is the story of a split-second decisions, made amid a fog, made amidst a fog of confusion in the dead of night, which sent two airliners, a Tupolev and a DHL, careening into one another at 35,000 feet. It is a story of a tragedy, which could have been avoided, and of a man in the throes of grief who sought his own perverted justice in the murder of the air traffic controller he deemed responsible. From what I've been able to dig up, this is the tragic tale of the Uber Lincoln air disaster and its aftermath, which comes across quite like a modern-day Shakespearean drama. Well, kind of like a bit more of a twisted, twisted, dark drama, as opposed to, I guess, in some ways, a Shakespearean. But the crash was also about a fundamental blind spot in the global air traffic control system of the time, a gap whose existence authorities had failed to close. And it was perhaps a distant echo of the collapse of the USSR at the time, a reminder that the Russian and Western aviation industries still possessed divergent impulses who unti- whose untimely intersection could plant the seeds of a disaster. Now, 20 years after the accident, long after the closure of its final chapters, we can look back upon the events of July 1st, 2002 from both perspective, literary and scientific, to attempt to tell the story of a profound human tragedy and a deficient system which made it inevitable. Far to the east of Moscow, in the rolling hills along the margin of the Ural Mountains, lies the city of Ufa, UFA, capital of the, the Autonomous Republic of Bashkortostan. Sorry for the mispronunciation. Like most of the Russian interior, it fell on hard times during the 90s, 1990s. Well, yeah, 1890s or 1790s. Of course, 1990s. As the collapse of the Soviet Union devastated the local manufacturing industry 
and plunged thousands into poverty. Even by 2002, as Russia's economy started to turn around, travel opportunities for the people of Ufa were limited. It was therefore quite a cause for celebration when the city's special UNESCO-affiliated school announced that its, pat- that its parent agency, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, would organize a field trip to a, to a planned UNESCO Youth Festival on Spain's prodigious Costa, uh, at Spain's prodigious Costa Dorada. A few dozen of the school's top students were selected. Some for their academic prowess, others for their skill in art, music, athletics, and other fields. Others brought their others bought their way in. The parents of some school children paid several hundred dollars apiece to send their children on the trip, a substantial sum of money which some could only afford at the expense of their own planned vacations. The school group, including some 44 children between the ages of 8 and 18, traveled to Moscow on June 29, 2002, where they planned to catch a commercial flight to Barcelona. But their bus driver accidentally took them to the wrong airport. Moscow has several, and they missed their flight. While most travelers could simply go to, well, most travelers could simply go to the check-in counter and arrange to board a later flight, the group of 44 kids and five adult chaperones would need special accommodation. Stuck in Moscow while the trip organizers frantically searched for a transportation solution, the children toured the Red Square, the Kremlin and the other national landmarks snapping photos of each other's smiling faces in front of the high red walls. They could, they could not have known that their unexpected layover in the capital would be the first link in a deadly chain of events that would shock and terrify the world. After two days in Moscow, the school group received a lucky break. A local airline having heard of the plight of the kids from Ufa, was able to arrange a charter flight to Barcelona on the night of July 1st. The company in question was Bashkirian Airlines, the de facto flag carrier of the Republic of Bashkorkestan, which had split off from the original Aeroflot which had split off from the, from the regional Aeroflot subsidiary in 1992 and now now carried passengers throughout the central russia throughout central russia and to popular holiday destinations abroad including barcelona between its local connections and its experience with the destination airport it was ideally positioned to carry out the flight on short notice and so late on the night of of, of, the, of late on the night of july 1st the kids and their chaperones boarded a Bashkirian Airlines Tupolev TU-154 at Moscow's Domodedevo International Airport. They were joined by eight passengers, who were not part of the school group, but had also missed earlier flights to Barcelona. A family of four from Belarus is thought to have been among them. Also on board, were Svetlana Kolieva and her two children, Konstantin 
10, and Diana, 4, who were on their way to visit their father, Vitaly Koloyev, an architect from the northern Caucasus town of Vladikavkaz. I'm trying to, I'm reading this and going, you're not going to be able to pronounce that, but try it anyway. Vladikavkaz, who was working in Barcelona that summer on a vacation home for a Russian oligarch. Added on to the school group, the five other unaffiliated passengers and the 12 crew members the Kaloya family bought, brought a, the total number of people on board to 69. Although their, three, although their three-engine Tupolev Tu-154 was designed in the 1960s in the Soviet Union, this particular example was much newer, having been produced in Russia in 1995 and was equipped with some of the latest technology. Nevertheless, a large cockpit crew was required to fly. That night, there would be no less than five pilots aboard, including 52-year-old Captain Alexander Gross, 41-year-old Inspector Captain Oleg Grigoriev, and Chief Pilot at Bashkirian Airlines, the Chief Pilot at Bashkirian Airlines, who was overseeing Gross as he familiarized himself with the procedures at Barcelona. 50-year-old navigator Sergei Karlov, 37-year-old flight engineer Oleg Valiev, and 41-year-old first officer Murat Itkulov, sorry for butchering that, looking at them going, I'm attempting to pronounce it, and probably failing miserably, but I'm attempting, so. However, instructor Captain Grigoriev was situated in the right seat, performing the duties of pilot, not flying. So First Officer Ikulov simply rode along in the jump seat without being assigned any specific duties. Also on board were four flight attendants and three other Bashkirian Airlines employees riding behind as passengers, totaling 12 crew members. All seemed routine, as the Bashkirian Tupolev, operating under, operating under the flight number BTC-2937, departed Moscow and headed west across Europe, cruising at 36,000 feet. One air, traffic one air traffic control sector gave way to another, and by 2330 Central European time, they were over southern Germany, passing over Munich. Passing over Munich. At that time, anticipating its imminent entrance into neighboring airspace, control from Zurich, the Munich Air, Zurich, the Munich Air Controller, handed the flight over to his Zurich-based counterpart. That night, a single controller was handling all the airspace within the Zurich air traffic control sector, which was which was frowned upon, you shouldn't really have one air traffic controller handling all that space in there. That was strongly frowned upon. And losing my place as they do every episode. The facility... 
The facility handled all mid and high level air traffic in an area covering northeastern Switzerland and southwestern Germany, as well as approach services for aircraft descending into airports in St. Gallen and Friedrichshafen. Tonight, all of those tonight all of those duties fell on the shoulders of just one person. Danish-born air traffic controller Peter Nielsen. Normally, this would not be a particularly stressful arrangement. Traffic in the region at this hour was usually quite light, since all the nearby major airports had closed for the evening, leaving only high-level transiting aircraft bound for other parts of Europe. At the facility, it had become common practice for one of the two traffic controllers on duty to take an extended rest in the break room during the middle of the night shift once the planes had landed in St. Gallen and Friedrichshafen, and tonight was no exception. The other qualified controller left the room at 23.15, and their assistant left 10 minutes later, leaving only Peter Nielsen and another assistant who's not authorized to control traffic. For Nielsen, this wasn't an unusual situation and he anticipated no difficulties controlling the two or three aircraft that were typically in his airspace at that time of night. But, on the night of July 1st, there were additional complications. The air traffic, con- the air traffic control company had recently decided to make modifications to the way it divided upper-level air- airspace, necessitating several changes to the com- to the computer hardware that kept the control center running. Partway through Nielsen's shift, a group of technicians arrived to install the update, and he was informed that his workstation's main computer would have to be shut down, causing his displays to operate in fallback mode, a secondary condition in which several features provided by the main computer base became unavailable. In fallback mode, the system, which automatically correlated the aircraft's radar return with its field flight plan, would not work. Filed flight plan. Filed flight plan, not field flight plan. Forcing him to enter the information manually. In the short term, and the short term conflict alert light, which illuminates when the system predicts that two planes will, will be able to will pass too close, would be rendered inoperative. But Nielsen had no idea which features would be lost in fallback mode. Nor did he have any obvious way of finding out. And, as if that wasn't enough, a few minutes later, the technicians informed him that they would also have to disconnect the control center's direct telephone landline to neighboring centers, thus sounding like it was screwing him over more and more. The glitches were adding up, but with so few planes in the air, how dangerous could it be? But just moments after the Tu-154 Tupolev entered Zurich airspace, Nielsen faced another complication. An Airbus A320 belonging to German to German charter airline Aero Lloyd contacted Zurich, reporting that their flight had been delayed 
and they wanted, wanted to perform a late approach to the Friedrichshafen airport. When the second controller went off duty, no one had, had anticipated that an aircraft would try to land at Friedrichshafen after, the, after its initial closing time. So Nielsen was forced to abruptly switch, switch his focus to the approaching sector, which normally wouldn't have been his responsibility. It would have been possible to call and wake the second controller, who normally handled the approach services, but for just one plane, it didn't seem worth it. After all, with the Aero Lloyd plane already lined up for approach, all Nielsen needed to do was call Friedrichshafen that it was coming. He picked up the direct landline to the Friedrichshafen control tower, but it had been disconnected. He tried using the regular phone system to call a posted num- number for the tower, but that didn't work either. This was starting to become more complicated than he had anticipated. Meanwhile, aboard the Tupolev, the pilot spotted another plane in the distance, appearing on the situated display, situational display of the traffic collision and avoid- avoidance system, TCAS. Traffic Collision and Avoidance System. The system, TCAS, incorporates altitude, speed, and heading information broadcast by the transponders of nearby aircraft, compares it to the aircraft's own trajectory, and automatically assesses the relative threat of a collision. If the plane's projected paths come too close, both airplanes' collision avoidance systems will simultaneously issue opposite resolution advisories, telling one plane to climb and the other to descend. But so far, this other plane was still more than 10 nautical miles away, too distant for the system to suggest such a drastic action. Despite the distance, however, instructor Captain Grigoriev could already see the planes flashing anti-collision lights, blinking against the blackness of the moonless night. Here, visually, he, had see, he said, pointing out the window, and, and here it is showing us zero, he added, referring to the TCAS display, where the number representing the height difference between his aircraft and the intruder indicated zero feet. The other plane was in fact DHL Flight 611, a Boeing 757 cargo plane hauling packages from hauling packages from Bergamo, Italy, to Brussels, Belgium. The flight had departed either earlier that day from Bahrain, where DHL has its own has its own local subsidiary airline, and was now on the second leg of its trip after scheduling cargo a cargo swap in Bergamo. In command were two experienced pilots, 47-year-old Captain Paul Phillips and 34-year-old First Officer, First Officer Brant Campioni. Although they lived in Bahrain, they were originally from the UK and Canada, respectively. No one else was on board. Phillips and Campioni had made contact with Nielsen at 2321 and were cleared five minutes later to climb to 36,000 feet in accordance with their flight plan. Unbeknownst to the crew or the controller, this put DHL Flight 
611 and Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937 on course to cross paths at the same height above an undefined point near Lake Constance on the Swiss-German border. Now at 23.34 and 24 seconds, First Officer Campioni said, Excuse me, I'll use the facilities. And he got up to go to the restroom. Eighteen seconds later, an automated voice called out, Traffic! Traffic! Captain Phillips' attention was suddenly drawn to his TCAS display, where he saw an unidentified aircraft approaching at a right angle, approximately at the same altitude as he was. He watched it attentively, waiting to see if TCAS would issue a, a resolution advisory. At exactly the same point, the same automated voice called out, Traffic! Traffic! in the cockpit of the Tupolev. There! Traffic! Instructor Grigoriev said. In the control tower in the control center, Peter Nielsen suddenly noticed that the two planes appeared to be on a collision course. The The short-term conflict alert light would have illuminated two minutes ago. But it wasn't working, and Nielsen had noticed the conflict quite late. He quickly rolled his chair from the approach control station, where he had been speaking to the Aero Lloyd flight, back to the upper sector station, the upper sector station. Leaning into the mic, he contacted the Tupolev and said, Bravo Tango Charlie 2937, descend flight 350, descend flight three. Descend flight level 350. Expedite, I have crossing traffic. Descend, descend, Grigoriev immediately ordered. The instant he said this, the TCAS computer, detecting an imminent collision, issued a resolution advisory, and the robotic voice called out, Climb, climb. Captain Gross was already pushing his yoke forward to descend, when the first officer, when the first officer observing from the jump seat called out, "Climb!" it says, "He's guiding us down." Grigoriev emphatically replied. It was a situation for which they had never been trained. A controller telling them to descend to avoid another aircraft, while TCAS simultaneously instructed them to climb. It would obviously be impossible to comply with both. So, which other should they trust? which would take priority? Meanwhile, on the Boeing 757, Captain Phillips received an opposite resolution. Descend! Descend! The robotic voice called out, and he immediately pushed his yoke forward to reach the target descent rate. The instruction came concurrently with Nielsen's identical instruction to the Tupolev, causing him to miss this critical exchange. Both planes were now descending toward each other at a closing speed of more than 1,300 kilometers per hour. Hearing the sound of the alarms, First Officer Campioni hurried back to the cockpit. Glancing out the window, he could clearly see the lights of the Tupolev at approximately their their 2 o'clock position, blinking in the void. Traffic right there, he screamed but it was impossible to tell without any visual reference point. 
whether the plane was above them or below. All they could do was trust the TCAS resolution advisory. But as a 611 descendant, the projected separation distance between the two planes wasn't changing. Increase, increase descent, the TCAS commanded. Phillips, pu- Phillips pushed his on his yoke even harder. In the control tower, Peter Nielsen hadn't received any acknowledgement of his instruction to the Tupolev. Bravo Tango Charlie 2937. Descend level 350. Expedite descent, he repeated. Expedite descent. Expedite. Expedite. Ex- take 493. Expedite descent level 350. Bravo Tango Charlie 2937. Instructor Captain Grigoriev acknowledged. For the pilots of the Tupolev, this, this second order removed any doubt about whom to obey. Captain Gross immediately pitched, up, pitched down even more, faithfully following the command to expedite. Ten seconds later, Nielsen hurriedly, hurriedly added, Ja, you have, you have traffic at your, at your two o'clock, now at 360. But from the perspective of the Tupolev, the traffic was at their 10 o'clock position, not their 2 o'clock. And, this mis- and his misleading transmission led to confusion in the cockpit. It's going below us, the navigator said, said Navigator Karlov. Where is it? Where is it? Grigoriev said, peering out the window. Here, on the left side, said the first officer. Increased climb, came the robotic TCAS. It says climb. But they kept ascending, accelerating through 18,000 feet per minute. As the Tupolev pilots frantically tried to, tried to work out what to do, Peter Nielsen, thinking he had ordered the, the Russian jet out of harm's way, slid his chair back over to the approach control station where the Aero Lloyd flight was calling him yet again. At his other station, First Officer Campioni on the Boeing 757 could be heard announcing over the radio Dilmum 600 TCAS descent but Nielsen never heard him aboard the 757 it suddenly became apparent that the Tupolev which just which was just a few seconds away ago a few seconds ago farther away was rapidly closing on their position descend first officer Campione shout, dis- shouted descend hard at the same moment, the Tupolev pilots saw the Boeing 757 hurtling out of the, hurting, hurtling out of out of the night, headed straight for them. Captain Gross exclaimed, hauling back on his control column, and pushing the engines to full power. On the 757, Captain Phillips pushed his yoke all the way to the st- all, all the way to the stop in a desperate attempt to dive. And for a moment, 71 lives hung in the balance. There is a lot of darkness and a lot of twisted and there's a lot of stories that go into what happened. Eventually, because the because they um, to the Tupolev, Peter Nielsen's instructions seemed to conflict with what the TCAS was advising them on, on doing. He didn't really know how to trust, who to trust, or what to trust. It has been proven since that in situations like that, you trust what the computerized voice is telling you to do. 
had the Tupolev climbed and the and the DHL descended, they would have completely missed each other. But they didn't. They both descended. And they both descended right into each other's path. And what happened was, if you, you, you'll see videos, is that the tail section of the DHL went under the Bashkirian Tupolev. And it collided with the fuselage of the Tupolev. And it cut the Tupolev in half. It, it sliced the Tupolev right in clean in half. Well, not clean, but it sliced the Tupolev right in half. And if you see videos like this, it just makes your heart and your soul sink. And this, I'm bringing, like I said earlier, I'm bringing this up to memorialize the lives that were lost. All of the lives on both planes. And just to live in their memory of, of what happened. And to honor them in their memory of what happened. There's a lot more to that story that I that I that I'd like to get into, and I'd like to get you know attack and get into more. But it kind of gets a little bit more maybe gruesome, and that's much, that's as much as I know. And I was able to dig up from my research and look more into it. It's very interesting what happened, and that that will live in their memory and in their honor. And thank you all so much for listening. Stick around for a little more in the end here. Want to check out the best travel vlogger and videos anywhere? Go to Atlantic City, Disney, Six Flags, all along the Atlantic City boardwalk, and go to Vegas. Check out the New York channel, N-U-Y-A-W-K, on YouTube. You will be thoroughly impressed and thoroughly entertained. You will love every second of what you're seeing. Go to YouTube and check out N-U-Y-A-W-K. You'll love what you're seeing. You'll enjoy every second of it. Want to check out the best cruising podcast everywhere? Check out Fantastic Cruising on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform. And on their Facebook community. Check out Fantastic Cruising, a great, great adventure you will love, love listening to and watching. Want to check out the environment, the climate, the planet, and everything we can do to have an impact on it? Check out City Climate Corner on all the podcasting platforms. Apple Podcast, Spotify, on everything. You won't be disappointed. You'll enjoy and love what you're listening to.